Tonight, we're going into chapter 9. We want to review just briefly chapter 8. In chapter 8, Paul starts to talk about how God had a better covenant. And that word better pops out. And that's exactly what it is. It's a better covenant. The new covenant was better because it was based on Christ. Instead of on what we can do, it's based on what he can do. And we mentioned that in verse 13, we could tell that the new covenant was about to come. And we mentioned before about how some of the Old Testament prophets even predicted that there would be a new covenant that would be made. But in verse 13, it tells that this had to be written before the year 70 A.D. Why? Because look at it. It says, in that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Why is it obsolete? Because the temple is about to be destroyed. The sacrifice has already been made in Christ. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We find that the temple was still in operation until 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. So he had to have written this because he said that was still future. So it had to be written before the temple actually fell. Let's look now as we go to chapter 9 where he had talked about a better covenant, he's now going to tell us in chapter 9 that there is also an old covenant, I mean an old sanctuary and a better sanctuary. And actually, the better sanctuary is older than the old sanctuary. Interestingly enough, let's look at Hebrews 9. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So there was a physical sanctuary. There were physical ordinances that took place. In Exodus 25, 8, it tells us that the purpose of the sanctuary, and is here alluded to in verse 1, it uses the word even implies that the heavenly sanctuary also has ordinances of divine service, and a heavenly sanctuary. In plain words, just as the earthly sanctuary had ordinances, so does the heavenly. Believe it or not, the Lord is actually operating on a legal system. You know, we're not supposed to be legalists. But yet, you know what? The Lord is a legalist. He's operating on a legal system. Why? Because the devil is going to try to trip him up at every point. And so he has to make sure that what is being done is kosher in the eyes of all that are looking on. And so we find that he's really following a legal process. That's what the whole judgment's about. Look at 9.2. It says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, it's interesting that the word sanctuary can apply to both the holy place and the most holy place. It can apply to the whole thing. The word sanctuary, why? Because it's holy, it's dedicated, it's set apart. So he's obviously talking about which part of the sanctuary. All right, he's talking about the holy place because that's where you find the candlestick. That's where you find the table and the showbread. That was in the outer part, okay? So this is where our vision is being drawn to. It's being drawn to the holy place. Now, he's going to follow that. Now, he's reviewing this with the Jews with all expectations that they knew what he was talking about. Because he will tell us, I don't have time to elaborate on this stuff. You guys already know this. Only he said it a little differently. Okay? Let's look what the note says about this on, on verse 2. The first part of the tabernacle, the holy place, 
contains certain articles of furniture as given here. This is called the holies. The other part is called the holy of holies. Okay? This is called the holies. Notice that the altar of incense is not mentioned in that text that we just read. Notice it's not mentioned there. Because the altar of incense, all year long, they would burn the incense, which represented the prayers of the people, in the holy place. But on the Day of Atonement, when he goes behind that curtain, he takes that incense in with him, you see. And so, as we look at the next verse, verse 3, it says, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, the most holy, Verse 3, the second apartment called the holiest of all. This is what we call the most holy. Look at verse 9. Now it said, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Notice, tables of the covenant. That was the contract, that was the agreement that God had made with the Old Testament people that he would be their God, they would be his people. They would keep his commandments. And he wrote them on tables of stone. It's interesting, in one of the texts in the Bible, which I'm not going to give you right now, it mentions that only the Ten Commandments were in the box. So the question is, what happened to Aaron's rod that budded? What happened to the pot of manna? There's reason to believe that these sometimes were put outside of the, the box. But when he sees them, they're inside the box, you see. So... How to interpret that text, there's still debate. Because there's a question, just like the, um, there were other things that were in the Most Holy. Remember the uh, law of Moses that was written on parchment. It was put in the side of the tabernacle, you see. But here he sees these things inside of the box. All right, Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Now notice what it says about verse 4. Notice that the golden altar of incense is mentioned as being in the second apartment. In Exodus 26, 31 through 35, it tells us all about the erection of the sanctuaries. Exodus 41 through 5 tells that the altar of incense before the Ark of the Testimony. In pictures, it is often seen in the first apartment. Apparently, it was in both at different times. On the Day of Atonement, it was within the veil. The bowl of manna, Aaron's rod, and the moral law were inside the ark. So this is the Ten Commandment moral law that went inside the box. The law of Moses, the ceremonial law, was on the side of the ark, okay? Now, the ceremonial law was traditionally kept on the side of the ark, not in it, since it was temporary right from the beginning. Right back in the time of Moses, it was meant to be temporary. And because of this, this is what would be nailed to the cross. Not the moral law, but the ceremonial. Look at 9.5. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. In plain words, we're not going to dwell on these angels that are overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because he wants to move on and talk about other things. He presumes they know a lot about it. And another thing is he didn't want to get sidetracked. But it's interesting that there were two angels that overlooked the the mercy seat. The box itself, the ark, was made of wood, but it was lined with gold. The lid was solid gold, you see. What did it symbolize? 
it symbolized that mercy was above the law. That God was having mercy intercede between the law and his presence. That, of course, in itself symbolizes, what does gold symbolize? Faith. Faith in whom? In Christ. Our faith in Christ is what shields us from the penalty of the law. The two angels that overlooked it, they were called the covering cherubs. And Lucifer had been one of those. He fell. We have reason to believe that he was replaced by Gabriel. It never tells us who the other one was. But we have reason to believe that he was replaced by Gabriel. And Gabriel, being right next to the presence of God, whenever God had something important to tell the people, he sent Gabriel to do it. In the book of Daniel, it was Gabriel who came to Daniel and gave him the prophecies. When Mary was about to have a baby, it was Gabriel, 600 years later, who comes and tells her that she's going to have a baby. So 600 years, I mean, he must have been around a while. Right? So this is what it all symbolizes. As we go on, look at the note here. In Leviticus, notice how Leviticus ties into this. Leviticus 16.2, it speaks of the mercy seat. The apostle does not have time to dwell on the furniture and the relics associated with them. He must keep moving. He must move on and expound on his main theme. What is his main theme? He wants to talk about the sacrifices that were used in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. He's going to compare them with the sacrifices of the New Covenant. He's going to compare one sanctuary with the other sanctuary. Some of this we've already touched on before, but here he's trying to amplify on it. Now, verses 6 through 10 elaborate on the Old uh, Covenant sanctuaries Sacrifice, thank you. 9.6, please turn to 9.6, look at that. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Now, notice it says these things were ordained. These things, when you ordain something, you commission it. You put it into operation. Uh, you set it aside for a particular purpose. When you ordain a deacon, an elder, or a pastor, you set him aside for a particular work. And so we find that the whole tent itself and the services were ordained for a purpose. What was the purpose? It was to reveal something about the Messiah to come. That was the whole object of the tabernacle service. It was to point to the coming of the Messiah. It was to be a symbol or a shadow of what was to come. And when the actual person it represented came, they became obsolete, no longer a need for them. And thus, they were nailed with him to the cross, you see. But that does not mean the moral law, of course. Look at verse 6. In Numbers 18, 2 through 6, 28.3, it tells us of the Levitical priesthood service in offering sacrifices at the earthly altar daily. They repeated this work each day in the first apartment of the tabernacle. Because we've already gone over some of that ceremony in the past, we're not going to elaborate a whole lot on it. Neither did Paul, because he figured that they should know it by now. Remember, he scolded them a few chapters back, he said, why are we going over all this stuff over and over again when you guys are supposed to know it and you're supposed to teach other people, yet you need the pablum all over again? You haven't matured. You haven't grown to be able to explain it to others yet. We have to keep telling you, you see. And so there's a lot of people today who have been Christians all their lives and they haven't the slightest idea about the sanctuary service or what it represented. And we need to be careful of that, that we don't fall into that same trap. All right, look at concerning verse 7. It says, Once a year the high priest alone went 
in before the throne of God in the inner apartment on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, okay? Symbolizing the judgment that was in the future. He took blood offered for himself and for the people. Now, Christ had no sins. He didn't have to offer blood for himself. He offered the blood for the people. Now, notice here something interesting. Sins of ignorance were forgiven. What's that implying? They were offerings for sins of ignorance. Do you think Judas knew what he was doing when he betrayed Christ? Do you think that those sins are covered? When we deliberately deny Christ, we've got to be awfully careful because we may be committing sins that are not covered, you see. And we need to be careful that we don't commit the unpardonable sin of cutting off the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that reveals to us what sin is, you see. And so it's just interesting to note that it was the sins of ignorance that were forgiven. Those that were premeditated or deliberate, saying, I know what God wants, but I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. You know Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Well, I, I'll spare you the, my talent. <laughs> but anyway, uh, maybe it worked for Frank, but it doesn't work in the judgment. Paul mentions it about the sins of the flesh, how what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And those things that I don't want to do, guess what? Those are the things I end up doing. That's the human flesh struggling against the spirit, really. But he also wants us to overcome. But what we're talking about here is when we deliberately don't want to overcome, we want to stay where we're at. That's, I think, what he's implying here. And uh, as we look at this, he's even murder, you know, if a person accidentally kills somebody, but they didn't mean to, it was an accident, that is treated differently in court than the person who sits down and plots out how he's going to do it. And then he deliberately, step by step, follows his plan and does somebody in. That's why it's called premeditated. And pre means ahead of time, you meditated on how you were going to do it. You see, notice that before Jesus ever went into the garden, Judas had already contacted the priest. You know, what what am I going to get if I betray him? So he knew what he was doing. It wasn't an accident. That's why when he came back and he he threw the money at the uh, feet of the priest, he said, I've shed innocent blood. They said, what do we care? That's your problem. You see. They weren't at all sympathetic to him. Notice what it says in 9.8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In plain words, the holiest of all, the most holy, the judgment period, that had not yet happened while that's, that first sanctuary was still standing. Why? Because Christ has yet to begin his, his work as high priest, you see. And the old one becomes obsolete and the new one kicks into gear. This is what happened at Pentecost. All right, look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit says that the true day of atonement was not possible while the earthly sanctuary or tabernacle was still functioning. It had to go first. And in John 14, 6, it's related uh, in the thought of this passage. And so we find that they're interconnected. Look at 9, 9. Which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make them that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. 
All right, let's see what the New King James says for 9.9. It says, And it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. In plain words, it couldn't clear his conscience. It couldn't clear his heart. He could go through the ceremony, but the guilt was still there. It took a better sacrifice than that of animals to cleanse that. From the beginning, the Old Testament covenant was meant to be a temporary document or a temporary service until the true reformation came in Christ. The conscience cannot be fully matured or perfected toward God and from sin through the blood of animals, but through a divine sacrifice of Christ's blood. The others were only symbolic of his offering. You know what I like to think of it as? I like to think of what happened in the sanctuary of the Old Testament as a MasterCard. You can go out and you, you can buy yourself a new couch and put it on your MasterCard. But you know what? That bill is still there. You see. It, you, you may take the couch home and enjoy the couch, but the bill will come due. You see. In the New Covenant, Jesus pays the bill for you. So, you get to go to heaven on the master's card. You see? He has paid the bill. And with the Old Testament, they're looking ahead for the Messiah to come who would pay the bill for the sins that they committed during the time of the Old Testament. It was by faith in what was to be that they had, by faith, assurance of forgiveness. But that bill still had to be paid. With us, we look back at what the Messiah did. That's our visa card. You see, we look back that he already paid the bill so we can have a visa into the kingdom. You see, so basically, all of it boils down to righteousness by faith. Now, this idea that the people in the Old Testament times were saved by their good works, by their offering of animals. No, many of those people who offered animals are going to be lost. But there's many of them who offered the animals who will be saved if they had faith in what that animal was symbolizing and the Messiah that he symbolized, Moses being one of them and Aaron being one of them of what was to come. Look at verse 10. Now notice it says, the food and the drinks mentioned are harvest uh, ceremonial offerings. When the harvest came in, they would offer up for the wine offering, they would offer up the first fruits of the wine to the Lord as a thank. Okay? When the grain came in, they offered up the bread as a thank to the Lord. These were actually offerings. And you'll notice in Colossians, uh, the second chapter, it will say, talk about food offerings and drink offerings. It doesn't use the word offerings. It says food or drink. And so people oftentimes say, well, that means you can eat anything you want, you can drink anything you want, because those Old Testament health laws have been cast aside. That isn't what it's talking about. It's talking about the ceremonial food offerings, the ceremonial drink offerings. That's what's being talked about here. This does not refer to unclean meats or alcoholic beverages, as some try to imply it. Now, what about the new covenant sanctuary? We've talked about the old covenant sanctuary. Now, he's going to compare it with the new. Look at 9.11. But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come. Notice that. It's pointing to the future. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, which is pointing to the future of what's going to kick into gear. 
not made with hands or human uh, construction. That is to say, not of this building. So this verse alludes to chapter 10, verse 1, which explains itself, that it was God who constructed the heavenly sanctuary and set up that system. Now he starts talking about the sacrifice of the new covenant. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So it's only once that Christ goes behind the curtain into the most holy place. When did that happen according to the 2300-year prophecy? The 23-year-100 prophecy came to an end in what year? 1844, right? It went into gear in 457 B.C. 2300 years later, it comes to an end in 1844, and it says, and time shall be no more. What does that mean? Well, we're still here. We're past 1844. It can't mean that no longer will it be time. It means that time prophecy, that's the longest time prophecy in the Bible, that after 1844, there would be no more time prophecies. We are living in what is called the last days, uh, the probationary times. Why? Because Christ has gone behind the curtain from the holy place to the most holy place. Thus, we have moved into the time of the judgment. The judgment has different parts to it, too, just like it does in uh, an earthly court. But he has moved into the most holy place. When he comes out, we'll have to wait and find out when he comes out. But we know that he moved into the most holy place in 1844. So, what does that mean? It means we are living in the time of the judgment. Now, it's interesting that the last church of Revelation is the church of what? Laodicea. What does Laodicea mean? It means the church of the judgment. It's the time of the judging. That's what it means. And is everybody ready for the judgment? What's it say about the Laodiceans? They're sleepy, right? He said, some are hot, some are cold. He said, I wish you were all on fire for me, but because you're not hot for me and you're not really cold for me, you're just blah. You're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you in the ditch. That's what he thinks of lukewarm Christianity. And I remember one time I was working, doing something, and my wife said to me, do you want a hot drink or a cold drink? I said, I don't care. She said, okay. She thought she'd teach me a lesson. And so she went back and she got me a a cup. And uh, I was working away. And in my mind, because it was a cup, I thought it was going to be a hot drink. So I took and I put it up to my mouth and it was lukewarm. It was water. And I brought it up to my mouth and I took some of my and I spit it out. And she said, what'd you do that for? And I said, I thought it was, you are going to give me a hot drink or a cold drink. This is lukewarm. She said, well, you said you didn't care. So next time I learned to be more specific, you see. And this is the way it is with God. He wants us either to be on fire for him or if you're going to be in the world, be in the world. But you've got to realize that in the last days, that the Holy Spirit is going to be gradually withdrawn from the earth. He's going to be withdrawn from the wicked, and he's going to be poured out on the righteous. In plain words, the bad people are going to get badder, and the good people are going to get gooder. That's perfect English, isn't it? So, in plain words, uh, you'll notice that people 
are starting to intensify in their evilness. And there are those who are seeking the Lord who are more diligently trying to find out what truth is. And those are the ones we've got to hit with the gospel, right? We've got to point them to Christ. Let's, the devil gets a hold of them before we do. And so we find that much of this is uh, involved with all this. In verse 12, it refers to, I want you to notice that he has already obtained eternal redemption once for all time before he enters the most holy place. He already has the authority when he goes into the most holy place. And on the cross, that redemption was purchased. Look at 9.13, and it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, but notice in this, it says, if. What is if? If is a conditional statement. What's it saying then as we look at verse 13? So if it was sufficient that the blood of bulls and the sprinkling of these ashes could make anything pure, then why would we need a second one? How much more shall the blood of Christ, which is perfect blood, who through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You've got to realize that our God is the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. You know, I can't help some people pray to Mary and say, um, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. You know what? After a person is dead, it doesn't matter what you pray for them. Their fate is sealed. But those who are alive, they still have the opportunity to make decisions. That's why whenever I do a funeral, I do a eulogy about the deceased, and I talk about the person who died. Never preach them into heaven or warmer climates. That's the Lord's job, right? It's not for me to judge if they went up, down, or where they went. I know they went down into the grave, but that's the Lord's job. But we talk about the good memories and the good times of that person. And then what the second part of the funeral, I always talk to the audience. I talk to the people and remind them, how do you know how much time you have? This may be your last day on earth. Are you ready? You see. Why? Because the book of their life is sealed, but ours is still open. We still can make decisions for or against Christ. We can still grow in our Christian experience, or we can deny him in our experience. And remember what I said before. You're never saved or lost alone. You'll always take somebody else with you. Oftentimes I've heard people say, well, it's my life, I'll live it the way I, I want to, and it's not going to hurt anybody but me. Oh, yeah? Well, what if you're a parent, and you're, you're into drugs and booze and everything? Don't you think that affects your wife? Don't you think that affects your kids? You have something called influence. And you need to be careful of that, because that influence could be for good or for evil. And we need to be careful that the very people we love the most, we don't lead in the wrong direction. Because more is caught than taught. You can say, well, don't you guys smoke. It's not good for your health. As you puff away on a cigar. You know? Guess what? Kids are going to be down buying tobacco first chance they get. Because more is caught than taught. Your example will say more than your words. Yes, ma'am. All right. She, she mentioned about someone she was talking to who said that they prefer to think that their mother's in heaven rather than the grave. 
and what can you say? This is very common. Do you realize that when you're giving Bible studies, it is much easier to convince people of the Sabbath than it is that grandma's in the grave? Because emotionally, you want that person there. You don't want them in a cold, wet grave. You want them where it's peaceful and happy and, and everything's going well. So a lot of this is speaking from emotion. Yeah, she mentions that she's in a, a, a safe place, that the Lord has actually, um, no harm can come to the person. But emotionally, they're not going to feel that way. In our grief recovery, we're going to be, you know, we, we touch on that a little bit. Because emotionally, it's hard for a person. I know many times I've given uh, Bible studies on the state of the dead, and I've gone through all the texts and everything, and I say, well, do you understand what the scriptures say? Yeah, I understand. Um, So what do you think about it? How does it apply to you? Well, I know what the Bible says, but I prefer to think that they're still in heaven. I mean... I prefer to think I'm very wealthy. I prefer to think I'm a millionaire. But I've got to convince my creditors of that, and I've got to convince the bank of that, you see. You can believe whatever you want. That's called self-delusion. But what's it saying? Well, my heart is overriding my head on this. What does the Word of God say? Who's of greater authority? But emotionally, you're not ready to accept that. But some people, you know, it takes time for them to come to the point. Oftentimes people will come to the point once they understand uh, authority of Scripture. Because for a lot of people, religion is nothing but warm fuzzies. And they have a picture of God as being a warm, fuzzy Santa Claus. That's what universalism is. You know, you've heard of universalism and Unitarianism. Universalists believe no matter what you do, nobody's going to get lost. You can go out and kill people. You can commit adultery. You can, you can um, steal all you want. But you're still going to go in. Satan's going to be there. Judas is going to be there. Everybody's going to be there because God's a God of love. And because he's a God of love, he loves his creature. He wouldn't let anybody be lost. Well, you know, that completely runs contradictory. Why do we have a judgment? Why did Christ have to die if everybody was going to get there without him? You see? It nullifies the whole cross. It nullifies the judgment and end time things because we prefer the warm, fuzzy God rather than the God of judgment. I don't know if that answered your question. You got something to say. I see you moving your hands like that. And that was a a good way of explaining it because when her husband died, she felt she wanted him to be in heaven instead of the cold grave. But then again, how how could he really be happy in heaven knowing the misery and the crying that she's going through? You see... Heaven itself would be a hell for him, right? Right. And so, thank you for sharing that with us. Anyway, as we go on here, where are we? We, Did I finish reading 14? Yeah, I did. Okay. Concerning 14, notice it said purge. Um, It says purge your conscience from dead works and serve the living God. Now, what's it mean by purge your conscience? When you purge something, what do you do? You get rid of it, right? And oftentimes you can purge things with fire. You can purge it with water, too. But as the Holy Spirit burns our conscience, okay, and burns our heart, he purges us away from dead works, and he brings new life to us. He Wakens us. You notice the Bible uses the word that we are quickened by the Holy Spirit. You know what quickened means? When the dead are awakened, the Bible says they are quickened. It wakes up the dead. 
and spiritually it wakes us up from dead works. You know, oh yeah, I'm going to church on Sabbath. I pay my tithe and everything because I'm supposed to do that. But all of a sudden you say, hey, now I know why I'm going. Now I know why I'm giving my tithe. I do it because I want to, not because I have to. And when you know that keeping God's commandments are a positive rather than a negative, all of a sudden you say, hey, you know, praise the Lord. You know, that's why he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. What's that means? It means when the Holy Spirit quickens your heart, you will keep his commandments because you love him. You see, he gives us a new vitality. He cleanses our conscience. This is what brings about our true reformation. In Hebrews 9.15, it says, in the Old King James, of course, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now here again, notice the word testament is used. We mentioned this last week. When a will, it is your last will and testament. Okay? That takes place one second after you die. That kicks into effect. But one second before your death, that hasn't kicked into gear. If Bob willed all of his wealth and home and everything to you, you couldn't collect it until he's dead, right? So don't get any ideas of bumping him off or anything. But it won't do you any good, even though you're on his will, you can't have it till he's dead. Yeah. In the meantime, he has sold everything he had to David. So when they start reading the will, you inherit everything he has, which is nothing. I mean, you might get his bills, however. But you see, a testament is only good when there's a death involved. And so... The New Testament, which is based on Christ's victory over sin, could not kick into gear until Christ actually died on the cross. Then it would kick into gear. Up until then, way back here, Noah and all the other people, they were looking ahead for him to pay that bill and to gain that victory. So theirs was a promise of the future that they look forward to. Ours is a promise that because of his doing this, we are heirs to the kingdom. And that that kingdom is going to take place first spiritually within us, called the hope within us, but physically in the actual going into heaven. In the Old Testament, it was a temporary thing, but here he's talking about the eternal kingdom. Verse 15, the death of Christ is emphasized as the means by which Christ became the perfect mediator. We receive the eternal promise of his inheritance only through him. Those who were under the first covenant found salvation only by Christ, as do those forgiven under the second covenant. So faith is the basis of either the old or the new. So the problem is not with the covenant. The problem is with those who say they will keep it. The people say, we'll keep it in our own strength in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he says, I will gain the victory for you, and then I'll give you the strength to fulfill it. You will do it through my strength, you see. That's the difference. That's where the focal point is. For where a testament is, 
there must of necessity be the death of the testator. A person must die before a will is effective, which we mentioned. So much the old system dies before the new system is effective. In 9.17 it says, For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. And Galatians 3.15 elaborates further on that. So, what's it say in 9.18? Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. In plain words, the Old and the New Testaments were both dedicated with blood. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, neither was the New Testament dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book and all the people. Now notice, what did he do? He took the sacrificial blood. He mixed it with water, the water of the Holy Spirit, okay? And the scarlet wool, scarlet is a symbol of sin. What does he do? He sprinkles not only the people with the blood, but he also sprinkles the book. In particular, the book of Deuteronomy, you see. And he sprinkles the law with that blood because that ceremonial law applied to the people. And They were a literal nation of Israel. Today we are a spiritual nation of Israel. Look at verse 19. Everything, scriptures, sanctuary, and people were dedicated with blood during Moses' day. And then in verse 20 it says, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined upon you. Verse 21. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Everything in the sanctuary was sprinkled with blood. Why? Because they were holy unto the Lord. Verse 21, and if you look at Exodus 29, 12, and verse 36, all the materials were consecrated. So that's where you find that uh, sprinkling taking place. Let's see what 9.22 says. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is what? No remission. What does the word remission mean? Basically, it means forgiveness. Without the sprinkling of blood, there's no forgiveness. In the Old Testament, when they sprinkled this all around the the sanctuary, it was for the forgiveness of sins. Here, we find that Christ brings his blood into the heavenly sanctuary. And there he applies his blood in our behalf. Look at what it says about 22. The shedding of blood is essential to salvation. The penalty for sin is death. There are those who say that Christ never really died on the cross. He just appeared to die. Well, if that's the case, if he just appeared to die then he never really resurrected. He never really ascended. So why be a Christian, you see? Because the Bible says that he really did die. He really did shed his blood. So we're just believing a fallacy. We're just believing a myth if that didn't really happen. So your salvation is nothing but a myth, you see. Christ had to die. He had to shed his blood or none of the Old Testament or the New Testament would make sense. It was essential. Since the better sanctuary required divine blood, not the blood of animals, as an atonement for sin, it is apparent that the earthly copy's use of symbolic blood in the atonement. It was just symbolic. It wasn't you know, of the true blood that was to come. 924 says, 
For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ takes your humanity in before the Father. He's our elder brother. He shares the human flesh. This this is the reason why it says in John that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Because now you have a divine being who for all eternity is tied to human flesh. Human flesh can now enter in with him into the presence of God. You see, that's a fantastic thing. And that's why he is worthy to be our high priest. Because he actually did take on human flesh. Christ enters both the holy and the most holy place as our representative or our lawyer in our place. When we talk about the judgment, I don't know how the Lord is doing it. We do know the scripture says that he starts with the, the dead and he moves toward the living. He starts with the church, the believers. You see, the judgment is for the believers because the sinners, they, they've already got their verdict because we're lost automatically if we don't accept Christ. Right? Because everybody sinned. Penalty for sin is death. So all of us are entitled to death. All of us are doomed for the fire. The only way out of the fire is by climbing the fire escape. Christ is that fire escape to heaven. That's why he is Jacob's ladder. You see. He's the fire escape between earth and heaven. And so we find that uh, the judgment, when he comes to my name in the judgment, I don't know how he's going, if he's going alphabetically or not, but Butcher comes before Quillen. <laughs> you got to remember that. I'm going to change my name to Zelinsky. But I don't know if he's going alphabetically or how he's going. He may be going according to when you were born. But however he's doing it, when our record comes up, he is our lawyer. He is our advocate. The word advocate means lawyer. He's our mediator between God and man. He's our advocate or lawyer. He's also our judge. And he's also our witness as well. You know what? We've got a stacked jury. We, we've got it made. The, if we have our sins forgiven, when it comes to our name, he goes, uh, look, you know, I'm looking through all these sins. And I can't see anything because there's red marks all over it. There's no evidence. Throw this thing out of court. And the righteous are vindicated. This is, we should be looking forward to the judgment with joy and expectation. It's a time of vindication. Look at 25. It says, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. So he, every year was repetitious, but Christ only enters the sanctuary once. He doesn't have to do it often. Verse 25, again, it's, uh, it's talking about the earthly priest offered many sacrifices, different kinds too for different kinds of sins. There were different offerings for different kinds of sins, by the way. Christ was offered once for all time. He is not constantly sacrificed as at the Mass. This is the reason why the Mass is contrary to what he's talking about, because it's called the sacrifice of the Mass. The church calls it that. And what does the priest do? He offers the body and the blood of Christ in the Mass. 
Well, the Old Testament priesthood did that. That's gone. Christ died once. He offered himself. We don't have to offer it again. Communion, therefore, is not the literal body and blood of Christ, but it's symbolic of the one-time offering, you see. Because if it were literal, if that could become the actual body and blood of Christ, stop and think about it. If I were a priest and I had the ability to say the magic words, hocus corpus meum, and make that into the actual body and blood of Christ, you would have the creator, a created being creating the creator. You see. And not only that, too, but both blood and human flesh are considered unclean. You would be eating unclean food and drinking unclean drink. Don't you think the Jews, especially his, the Jewish disciples, don't you think they might have raised a little bit of an eyebrow about that? Not only that, too, but you have Jesus who is the sacrifice, saying, this is my actual body and blood. You've got a problem because now you've got two Jesuses. You've got one on the table and one behind the table. You see. So there are many reasons why transubstantiation in the Mass is anti-biblical. Because it goes against this text, among others. Look at 9.26. For then must he often have offered since the foundation of the world, but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So right from the beginning, they offered animals pointing to Christ. What do you think when Adam and Eve sinned, what do you think they wore? What were they wearing before, well, after they sinned? What did they dress themselves in? In fig leaves, didn't they? They were kind of itchy. But what happened? It says that God gave them what? Animal skins to wear. Okay. Well, you know what? Either some animal had to die or there was some little lamb that was running around naked. Because how did he take the skins off the animal and give them to them? You see. So there was a lamb or an animal that had to die for them to be covered with the robes. So all the way back in Genesis, there was a sacrificial system that took place. Look at Noah. When he came off the ark, he offered, he didn't offer any unclean animals, but he offered of clean animals a sacrifice before God. So this was already there. Then when you get to Mount Sinai, then he establishes the system. This was actually uh, an object lesson that they were going to be uh, that there would be a Messiah who would have to come. Genesis 3.15 talks about the seed of the woman who would be the Messiah that would redeem them. He could have clothed them with anything he wanted. He had to impress them how horrible sin was. And if you had to kill a sweet little lamb, you know, especially if it was a pet, uh, you, you can imagine... I can only imagine what Adam must have felt when he saw the first leaves falling from the trees. Uh, Verse 26, it says, he would have had to be offered daily since Adam's sin if earthly priests could make atone for us. However, he was offered once for all time and is himself the only high priest between us and the Father in atonement. There is no other mediator. Now, I want you to know that there is a movement. And John Paul II, he came very close to making this official doctrine. 
I think someday soon it will become official doctrine that Mary is co-mediator, she's co-redemptrix, and she's co-advocate. In plain words, she is our mediator with God. She is our co-lawyer and our co-redeemer. That's actually a teaching that's very strong, not only in the Catholic Church, but is infiltrated into Protestantism too. And I expect to see that to come to the forefront before long and become official doctrine. But what does that text say? It says that he is the only high priest between us and the Father. 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Notice it doesn't say what happens between the time you die and the judgment. The judgment may be a thousand years away, but for you, you have no track of time. So you fall asleep and you say, oh, is it time to get up already? You see, your life book has closed. The next thing for you is the judgment. Look what this says. Physical death comes to us all unless they are among the righteous who live to see Jesus come. They will step from life into life. The next thing the dead see and hear is the return of the Lord in judgment. So even if my mother, who died in 1983, when she fell asleep, for her, just a snap of a finger, and she'll be able to see the face of Jesus. You see. It doesn't mean that she went to heaven. It meant that that time meant nothing to her. You see. The next thing is the joy of reuniting. That's what redemption is all about. Verse 28. So Christ was once offered and bare the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So for those who are looking for the coming of Christ, he will come as the sinless Savior. He will come more than as a Savior. He's still the Savior because he's the one that's going to save them from this earth that's going to be destroyed. But he's also coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To those who wait in their graves, Jesus will appear a second time at the general resurrection of the righteous. He comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to usher in the heavenly reign. So, in summarizing, we've reviewed a little bit of chapter 8, and then we talked about a new covenant, and it has a better sacrifice, a better sanctuary, a better high priest with a better law. Christ died once for all to continue with earthly sacrifices and an earthly priesthood is to deny the effectiveness of his death and the ministry of the heavenly sanctuary. So basically, that summarizes our chapter. All right, I think it's time for our quiz. I know you'd feel bad if I didn't give you one. Question number one. Christ was offered how many times for the sins of many? Just write on the line whatever you want. How many times was Christ offered for the sins of many? Question number two. There is no remission of sins without blood, true or false? Question number three. The second covenant would not have been necessary had the first covenant been effectual. Plain words, you wouldn't have needed the second covenant if you didn't have, if the first covenant had been foolproof. True or false? Number four.
The law of ordinances and ceremonies were nailed to Jesus' cross with him, true or false? Question number five. Sacrifices were only good for sins of ignorance. True or false? And then question number six. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. True or false? You got them all? Okay. Let's look at the answers. Christ was offered how many times for the sins of the world? Once for all time. Number two, there is no remission of sins without blood, and that's true. The second covenant would not have been necessary had the first covenant been effectual. That's true. And the weakness was in the people, not in the plan. The law of ordinances and ceremonies were nailed to the cross with Jesus, and that is true according to Colossians. Sacrifices, number five, sacrifices were only good for sins of ignorance. True. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. True. Here's your homework. Reread chapter nine. Read chapter 10 and invite someone else to join you next time, okay? And until then, let's have prayer. And we're out a little bit early, a few minutes early. So, shalom. Let's have prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your, your blessings to us. Come into our hearts, O oh Lord, and help us to, to truly serve you because we love you. And thank you for this marvelous ministry that Jesus performs on our behalf. We ask it in his name. Amen.